I want to welcome you to the new Drag Champ show. The three amigos are leading this show, none other than Jake Hodge, Mr. Hoodrich, Ryan Gleghorn, and Gary Don Free, Mr. Drag Champ himself. Now, I wouldn't ride to the store with these three yahoos, but you put them together for some good old stories, some racing news, some results from all over the world. Now, that's a party you just don't want to miss, so let's tune in, let's hang on, and let's get it on. I want to welcome you to the Drag Champ show. On the Drag Champ show this week, we have probably one of the most dominant two-class racers in Division Five history. He has, I don't know how many track championships from Brainerd. He's your current reigning and defending Super Gas Champion in Division Five, Mr. Chris Whitfield. How are you doing today, buddy? Good, good. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. I think you sold that a little too good. You make Hi. me sound like I, uh, I know how to drag race or something. Well, I mean, you got to – Division championship, Wally in the house, so it's hard to say that you don't. And a second place finish in Super Comp last year. And yeah. then how many track champions do you really have? Uh, 17 at Vandermeer okay. Speedway. See, uh, I nailed wow. it. Yeah, yeah. Not, not Brainerd, but yeah. Oh, yeah. So, which Vandermeer is – we were talking about before we went on there. Vandermeer is an extremely tricky track to run at because you could be rolling underneath the tower and it's – you got a tailwind, half track, it's – blowing sideways, finish lines blowing in your face, and it's different from lane to lane. I mean, just kind of go into a little bit of detail. I mean, how do you even race there first off? Because you lose like 500 horsepower as soon as you stage. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely its own animal. Um, and uh, it, even, even after racing there for 30 years, I'm still trying to figure the place out. Um, it's... Uh, like you said, you, you pull out underneath the tower and the winds on you got four different flags that are all blowing different directions. You have no clue what's going on. You can get a headwind where the left lane picks up and the right lane slows down. Um, really what we try to do is find a setup that's as forgiving as possible. Um, you know, one of the experiences that I've had is that, uh, when you go down to sea level, the car just likes to repeat and that's the complete opposite at Vandermeer Speedway. Like I'm sitting there staring at my weather pager all day long all the way up to the starting line. I've got my eyes glued on the density altitude, um, looking around, looking at the wind, all that stuff, trying to figure out what's about to happen. Most of the time I'm still wrong, um, which is, you know, where kind of try to bring the strategy into play that gives you the best chance to win. Um, but even as recently as this last weekend, um, I was struggling with the cars and I still don't know if it's the car. I don't know if it's the racetrack. I don't even know what was going on. And I could literally rack my brain looking at graphs and data and everything, trying to figure out what happened. Um, and I don't know if I ever will. And that's kind of the calling card of Bandmere Speedway is that it's it's just a difficult place to race. And you need your own setup for that one racetrack. Um, and it takes a lot. I mean, it can be four-link, carburetor, converter, you name it. Like you said, you just show up to the mountain and you're, you, you've lost a few hundred horsepower. So the car that you once had at sea level or anywhere near sea level is just completely different now. And it's just a little bit tougher to get a handle and we think bristol's bad yeah yeah we <laughs> yeah, thought bristol. altitude yeah, yeah. yeah it's altitude, altitude all right until you go I've west been to bristol before it's, we lose like we lose like 10 to 15 yeah i mean i think be nice chris is like i lose half a second damn it <laughs> no that's, if, if only if only it was a half i mean so like our super comp index we're running on a 950 so we, theoretically six tenths of a second I think from what I've heard, uh, real horsepower, you're down about 300 when you come up to Bandemir Speedway. 
Um, yeah. So, so how, how do you go from, let's say, a bracket race one week to a Division Five points race in Kansas the next? I mean, how do you, do you literally change converters and all that type of stuff, or do you have different cars to do that to bracket race with versus a Super Comp? We used to, and we used to change basically everything to go down to sea level. Um, and it's still not uncommon at all for people that are coming to Bandamere to pretty much change their entire setup for one race. Um, but the way that we kind of have our cars set up is that like, we're good enough at Bandamere Speedway. Like we can work with what we've got. And then that turns into, um, a really good race car at sea level. So that's kind of, it, it saves so much work doing that. Like our torque converter might be just a little bit tight for Bandamere and maybe just a little bit loose at sea level. But if it's going to be loose and consistent, we're good with that. So we really just try to set up everything kind of right in the middle where we can go different places to race without having to reinvent the entire car because no one's trying to do more work than what they have to do. Ryan, so, I just heard that he's holding a tent at Bandamere every week. Who told you that? <laughs> I think the secret's out because more and more people are figuring it out. If my car's not going to run the dial – you can always hit the brakes and slow it down and hit the dial, but you can't speed it up if you leave yourself short. So. I tried that for two weeks in a row and it didn't work. I still broke out. I, I need some lessons. <laughs> You're obviously better than most so, at it. So if, if you lose 300 horsepower going on the mountain, I'd show up and have 42 horsepower. How fast could I go? <laughs> You'd be right there with probably most of the fuel injected street cars. I'd imagine <laughs> that'd be a good street ET. I don't know. Hey, don't don't make fun of those fuel injected street cars now. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, are, I, that ain't nothing to mess with. We've got some shootout races up here at Bandmere where I'm literally staging up next to a 14 second Camaro, basically, and uh, I'm dialing 770s in the dragster, and I get my butt kicked because there's something to it. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, 17 time track champion. How fucking old are you? I just turned 30. I guess I'm working – I'm halfway to 31 at this point. So, so we definitely started, like, in the junior dragster era with winning track championships. I only got one in the juniors. So how many um, real championships wow. do you have? How many what? <laughs> <laughs> I said, so how many real championships do you have? I, I claim that they're all real. I don't know. No, they're, yeah. no, they're definitely real. I'm just giving you a hard time. No, I don't. But so it, – it, and I didn't even really get going until I was probably 19, 20 years old where um, I, I think I could point back to, like, Scotty's school. If you guys remember the first version of Scotty's online drag racing school? Yeah. Before that, I was the guy that would set up 15 because you don't want to go red, 15 to 20, and then dial what you think you're going to run, and then give it your best shot, which is, you know, fighting an uphill battle up here at Vandermeer. But once Scotty came out with his school, um, I, I lived on that website. And I don't know how familiar, familiar you guys are with that website, um, he's got his, his in-car videos of him racing at the million and he's basically talking you through, um, everything that he's doing throughout the runs. And I, I had all those videos memorized and that's where I really started to grasp like the concept of, um, holding spot dropping all this stuff that, that started turning into success because I mean, 10 years ago, I'm not sure that that was, um, mainstream knowledge and things have changed now with Luke's school um and and a few other schools that people are starting to learn the concept of of the numbers of drag racing but um i'd like to think maybe 10 years ago that was at least out here on the west side that i was a little bit ahead of the curve um with learning all that stuff so it really helped in in accelerating the success that i had 
um, back in that time frame. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk about 17 championships. And there's a lot of bad dudes that, I mean, let alone just race at Vandermeer. But, you know, you travel and you still turn on a whole lot of wind lights. And, like, if you were to – I don't know how to, how to categorize it, but it, where would you go if you – wanted to have the best chance you think do you think you have a better chance at super comp super gas or just in a, a regular eighth mile or quarter mile i guess up there in that super pro race yeah we don't do hardly any eighth mile maybe one or two a year at least at Vandermeer. um everything's quarter and when you take stuff down to half track people start asking the that question of like well if i'm only going half track can i pay half the entry fee like that's kind of the attitude <laughs> oh we're gonna get that started again yeah that's kind of the attitude that that we have around here because eighth mile just isn't a thing here on the mountain yeah, um, you can pay half the engine bill too yeah exactly so you know when it comes to i i like traveling because i, I feel really comfortable in different racetracks like we've been to enough racetracks at this point that I don't really care if we're going super comp, super gas racing, eighth mile bracket racing. Um, you know, we've been to so many at this point, even out here on the West Coast. And having been exposed to some of the East Coast racing culture, um, I think I went to the Montgomery Million maybe five, six years in a row. Um, just being exposed to that and then being able to come back West, um, I've kind of got like this broad, um, a little bit more of a broad view of racing than I guess some people have and, and i'm lucky in that and uh just having that experience really helps just in all arenas of drag racing yeah like you're probably one of five guys that wear a flat bill hat at the million you're not hard to find <laughs> that's a little bit of the west coast leaking on. i don't have the tall socks yet that uh that <laughs> and maybe some of the boise guys are famous for i i don't have that but the flat bill for sure you won't catch yeah. me without one of those it's like you langdon um harem when he's there Maybe Mangus, and oh, there's one more. I know there's race one more. Kid. You got to throw race, race kid. kid in there. Yeah, race yep. race kid's definitely flat bill and tall socks. And he even got he big kind of, in the tall socks at one point. I saw. He's got some kind of locks of love thing going on right now too. I'm not sure what that's about, but I don't know. But it works for him. Northrop talked about pulling. Uh, talked him. Talked him into having a mullet. I guess I'm not really sure. That's coming back too. Yeah, I don't know if that's a guy's post thing, but my kid's got one. Yeah. <laughs> did y'all see the photo I put on Facebook uh, Facebook on our Facebook page the other day with uh, Brody Quick? He was rocking a huge mullet in he, that photo. He's how a mullet back in the day, yep. Yeah, no, I've got it on film, baby. It looks great. That's why I put that photo up there. The mullet is coming back. David Bird oh, Jones so, will be in style. So hey, so we're going to, like, talk about the 17 thing, like, a couple more times maybe, but what – does any of those stand out to you? Any of those – I mean, obviously the first one's probably pretty huge, but, you know, is there any, any good – storyline to any of those that are that you're going to look back on and you know your grandkids are going to ask you about you know tell me about your racing story and you're going to that's the first one you're going to bring up um thinking back like the first one's hard to remember honestly um there was one year that i won four of them in one year and all four of them were in really competitive classes so that year's always going to stand out to me um and then like at the season ending banquet i get the top performer and, and it just seemed like i walked out with every trophy they had in there um, but in that year, like I learned so much about myself as a racer and just like handling the stress of it because I, I'm not the type of racer that can go out and just say, well, it's just another race. Like, I don't care about the points, that sort of thing. I am completely, uh, immersed in the points and everything. And I stress myself out to the point that I get sick 
and I even remember the last race where I locked up the fourth one of the year and that hadn't been done at Bandamere and, and it was it was a really big deal for me and I was literally stressed out to the point that I was sick um and you know it kind of took the fun out of it but at the same time I became so much of a better racer because I I experienced that pressure and I put that much pressure on myself whether it was a good or a bad thing sometimes I don't know um but just just accomplishing that it, it kind of gave me that um i don't know if it's like affirmation that you know i can get it done so my my personal confidence and, and my confidence as a racer really grew in that year so that one will always stand out to me is kind of like you know i left my mark and no matter what happens like i did something that at least at Vandermeer speedway is is going to be kind of um kind of tough to top so what what explain four championships in one year like what, so, what is there different classes is there there i mean how did you do that yeah so we we race like we're, we're the diehard weekend warriors so we're racing pretty much anything that they're running um but that would have been thinking back that would have been a super gas championship with the roadster super pro with the dragster um we have a fine line class which is basically like we take our top dragster top 32 fastest cars and then take off the back 16. So we have our fast 16 and then a fine line 16. Um, and then, so I won the fine line 16 season championship. And then I think it was a fall series super pro championship. Um, so it's all, you know, top bulb electronics um, or super class racing. And they're all pretty fairly competitive classes with, with good drivers and good equipment too. Um, so, you know, I don't feel like I've ever been cherry picking at any point, but. I don't know. So do they run like super gas, super comp weekly or is there, it sounds like you've run a lot more of that than probably the rest of the country gets to run at, at uh, Bandamere there. I wouldn't say weekly. I think per year we have five, six, uh, maybe seven races, including the national and divisional for the super classes, super comp, super gas, super street. Um, we really do get like a mix of everything out here. Um, even when we travel, um, it's not like we can go eighth mile racing every weekend. We can't go super comp, super gas racing every weekend. So like I said, pretty much whatever they're running at whatever track we're at, it's like we're in and we'll just change the numbers in the box and, and run what we can. Um, so a little bit of everything for sure. Um, I want to know how you let Greg Christensen go to Pomona and, and you just stayed at home and, and watched what happened there. I don't think, I even made a team to go to the ET finals last year. <laughs> it seemed like every other weekend we were on the road chasing the divisional thing. So then when it came to points back home, like I didn't even qualify for the Bandamir team. And I remember I was watching the live feed for that race. I was sitting out on the back porch watching him win this race. I was like, good for you. Like I, yeah, that's, that guy deserves <laughs> it. You know, he, he's one of the, he's one of the most awesome people to hang out with. And he's ultra competitive as, as you know, and, He's got a lot on his plate trying to keep Victoria in line, but he's uh, he's definitely deserving of it, and I thought it was pretty cool to see him out there. Yeah, no, I had fun watching him win that race, and he's actually the reason that I got to go to my first Montgomery Million. I actually traveled out with him in Victoria, and I drove his short car, and that was my first ever experience. Out Baby carrot. Baby carrot, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I got behind the wheel of that, and he, he's been generous and, and supportive of my racing career the whole way through, so – yeah, definitely glad to see him win that. And like, I, I try not to harbor like any kind of jealousy or anything when I see, um, you know, I get jealous because I'm not there and I, I don't get my shot at the division finals. But like, if I'm not there, yeah, I hope one of my friends wins it. And, oh, absolutely. And good for him that, you know, he got to go to Pomona and get that experience because that's a bucket list type of thing. 
He's got a lot of nice equipment too. He does. He's got equipment that people don't even know about because he doesn't have time to get it out because he's too busy <laughs> yeah. playing with his other equipment. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I talked to him once. He's like, yeah, well, I left this toter out here at Johnny's house, and I'm, I got my other toter back home. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now <laughs> he's got neat. his uh, top sportsman GTO. He's got TNT, American. He's got a Vega that I don't think anyone's seen yet. I just wired a Vega up for him. That one hasn't made it out yet, but it's in the works. So, so what is what does your day to day look like in Colorado? I don't I don't know where you're at in Colorado, but what what is a normal day uh, in the Alps up there? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a little thin when it comes to the oxygen. I'm like uh, 15 minutes south of Bandemir Speedway. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the area, but like right behind Bandemir Speedway, we have uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is like as far as the music industry goes, like when you played Red Rocks, you've made it. So I'm actually close enough to that facility that I've got a golf course right outside my window here where we have the same Red Rocks as they do it at the amphitheater. Like we're that close. Um, you got it like that, huh? I got, like, I got bears in my backyard. I got bald eagles flying overhead. Um, and I'm actually within eyesight of downtown Denver. So like, especially lately, it's been super clear without all the pollution and everything. Um, you know, I can pick out all the buildings from on top of my house, which is pretty cool because you get a little bit of the city life and you get that wilderness that, you know, I can go hiking in the mountains. I don't even have to drive to the mountains. I just walk across the street and they're right there. So, so you got like one of those houses you see made out of Facebook memes where you just you know, have the outdoor shower and you walk outside and just, just take a shit on the toilet at the back porch. Nobody around. <laughs> Almost. Almost. Oh, okay. Mike reported to the HOA. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I saw the drone footage. There's other houses very, very close by. Like, it's yeah. a neighborhood, but you're we're, very we're close like to the a little, like. a little offshoot that is like our little paradise out of the city, but like still close enough to reach the city. Um, but like, we've got all the wildlife right here, um, and you know, it's it's a nice community to live in. And nowadays, with the, the housing market the way it is around here, um, to get a house that where you can even see mountains in Colorado, like we've got huge mountains that you should be able to see from anywhere, but just to buy a house where you can look out the window and see the mountains, it's not crazy to to put the floor at like $350,000 just to have a decent house. Um, so, you know, cost of living is absolutely outrageous here, which kind of puts a damper on the racing. Um, but you know, we're, I guess we're lucky to live here for all the, you won four, four you different do. championships in the same year, and it puts a damper on racing. Come on. <laughs> it, it, it turns into so much of a grind, honestly, that, oh, yeah. like, it, it's, it's refreshing to have a little break lately um, and get some stuff done around the house. Like, I just bought this house a year ago. I've hardly touched it because we've been out racing so much. Um, so the wife has enjoyed uh, the downtime recently. You asked how familiar we are with Colorado. Um, I've been to Pikes Peak once and threw up on top of it. So that's that not right. Stayed at some some weird dude ranch in Colorado Springs. That the coolest thing we did all week was ride down the four inch deep creek on an inner tube. Sounds about right. It's all about perspective. Like that's what some people move here for. That's they're all about that. I thought people moved there for the pot. They do that too. That's <laughs> yeah. what housing costs a lot too. I can't partake. I work for a government contractor, so like I can't do any of that stuff. But yeah, you, you don't go anywhere around here without smelling yeah. that. Ryan's never done that either. Nope, not even once. Uh, so, I don't feel like Division Five really gets enough love. And if you go through like the point sheet, there's a lot of really bad dudes you run with. I mean, Trevor Larson won Super Comp last year. 
You got Michael Miller, who I think is really underrated. Gary Stinnett, who's probably the greatest super comp racer of all time, arguably. Mark Graham. I mean, why why do you think these people don't get as much exposure as you think other people do? That's a tough one because, like you said – Dick and Drag Champ. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a venue now, but – um yeah i grew up idolizing gary Stinnett. i mean that is the dude and i literally grew up watching him race um at, at the divisionals that we went to and there's just like i don't know as a little kid things are always way bigger right so yeah. he was like this untouchable hero in my mind and now i get to race with him which is pretty cool but guys like that and you said trevor larson um guys that win a lot that I, I don't know. I, I think I feel like in our part of the country, you still see those guys and you're still like, OK, like that's the guy right there. Um, but we're so geographically spread out and our race season is spread out um, in the calendar so much that you could, one of those guys could probably win three or four races in a row. And it wouldn't seem like it because they're only out 10 times of the year and they might win half of those. But just because it's all spread out. Um, time-wise and geographically, like the word just isn't spreading the same way. Um, and I don't know, all the legends are built a little bit different. Like um, Gary Stinnett's always going to have that that aura around him that he is who he is. There's guys back east that, um, you know, they, they're like legends out here on the west, um, but they're just everyday racers out there for you guys. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of a – it's, it's all perception. You know, we've got our legends out here. You got your legends out there. Some of them, some of them cross over. Um, now, obviously, with the the internet, you know, Gary Stinnett was winning races like crazy before the internet, um, and he doesn't have much of a presence himself on social media, for better or for zero. Worse. But I mean, people can make their own legends these days. You know what I mean? The oh, stories yeah. that they can tell on Facebook creates a legend out of them. Um, and some guys just aren't like that. I feel like we have a lot of those guys um, in the Division Five area. So on on that same topic, if your only priority was to race, where would you pick up and move to? I'm honestly um, interviewed for you, positions in Huntsville, Alabama. I, I, I interviewed for jobs out there. Welcome um, to the Shark Pool. If that's the case. Toughest yeah. place to win in America. If I mean, if you want to, if you want to go somewhere and you turn on a lot of wind lights, you just go to D four. But I yeah. mean, any other, any other time, yeah. If you want to, you want if you want to hate drag racing and everything else, that's a good place to move is Huntsville. <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to do it honestly, but with with the location there, I mean, I, I've heard guys say it on on the podcast before too, like Race Kid, the Theobalds and stuff. That when you want to go racing on the West Coast or just in the Midwest in general the next closest racetrack to us that has any kind of races worth going to is at least six hours away. And then after six hours, it goes to 12 hours. And then after 12 hours, it goes to 14, 16. And then if you want to go West from where we're at, you got to go over the stupid Rocky mountains to get anywhere. So that adds two or three hours to any tow that you're trying to make. Cause you're going up 8% grade the whole way. So just to be in a place like Alabama where, I don't even know how many racetracks you have within two hours. Don't even say it because I don't even want to know. Well, if I made it out there, I know that I could race so much more than we do here, and you'd be racing competitively for healthy purses, um, and you wouldn't have to go so far to do it. Uh, Yep, that's all I'm gonna say. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I can. There's there's struggles on both end of it because one, on division out there, y'all like said you have Bandamere in your backyard, but the next closest was 
There used to be a race in Pu- there used to be a racetrack in Pueblo, wasn't there? Is it still there? Still is. Um, yeah. Not something I would take my mid seven second dragster to. Understand. So you have that, and then to kind of go back to what you say about your Division Five schedule, you have a race in Denver, you have a double in Topeka, Kansas, in Great July, Bend, Kansas, August. <laughs> yeah, Miserable. hotter than hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have one in Brainerd, Minnesota, like That's twenty hours. Yeah, like it's crazy. That's the same division. And yeah. It's across the country. I think we used to have one in Louisiana or Mississippi. I don't know. It's some some place way out there. It wasn't even a consideration to go to. And it was just way out there. So, like, when we're talking about Jegs All-Stars or chasing the division, <laughs> like, we've got a lot of guys that race out of Colorado. They claim D7. It's easier. Even with a mountain range separating us from Division 7, yeah. you, can, you can do a little swing over there, and it makes sense. But then with Division 5, you can't make any kind of swing. Like, you go from Denver to Brainerd and back. Then you go from here – to Earlville, Iowa, and back. And there's no chaining races together. So it's like 20-hour trip, 16-hour trip, 14-hour trip. And all that takes so so much time and money. Like, And I'm not going to sit here and cry, feel bad for me, whatever. But if it, just thinking about the logistics, that's an extra day off on either side of the race. Um, and, and just the travel money of, of going 16 to 20 hours. I mean, the resources are just so draining. Um <laughs> It's tough. It's tough to justify, and it's um, it's a lot of fun when you do get to go do it, but it's a lot of time away from home, a lot of resources, um, and you know you have a lot of time on those long drives to think about why am I why am I actually doing this? Like, is this the is this the way to go? Is this the kind of racing I want to be doing? Um, but we do it, so you know we're stupid racers. That's what we I do. ask. I ask myself that question every time I get in a race car. Is this the kind of racing I want to be doing? <laughs> well, last year you doubled a divisional. You won what a twenty grander and a bracket side. So I mean, you had quite a few reasons to know why you were doing it, right? Well, so like you win. I, I was lucky enough to win that twenty k at the beginning of the year, right? And then that paid for all of the chasing of the divisionals for the rest of the year. So it's like a break even scenario. But I had to win a twenty k first to to even get the ball rolling. And with then, three thousand dollar championship. Yeah, and then even after winning uh, the two races at Bandemere, it's like it, it's kind of like that temptation, like, okay, I'm in this now. Like, I'm positioned really well for points and all-stars, but this does not make any financial sense at all. But we're stupid racers, so here we go. Uh, that's kind of like, a, what, a year or two ago when Luke decided to go off to uh, Rocky Mountain Raceways to chase the points and drove 20-something hours from Montgomery or Huntsville or wherever he was. And, yeah. Right, you're in it now. Like you're in the points, you got the mathematical shot. So what are you gonna do? Sit at home and watch it fade away? No, you're gonna go chase it, no matter how stupid it is. So, so tell us a little bit about the the, the double. It was at Brandemere, correct? Yeah, we're at Brandemere, um, and so it that was, was the first time you had done that at a divisional. That was the first divisional I won. Period. Um, wow. Never even really came close before that. So um, coming into the weekend, like the forecast was terrible. So I was pretty laid back, not stressing out about anything, because I was like, it's going to rain out. It really doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, the skies cleared up. We went racing. And uh, it, it was just one of those days where bouncing back and forth from one car to the next, like everything just came together. Everything made sense. The cars were just running what they were supposed to, which, you know, we talked about how tough that is to, to get that going at Bandemere. But um, 
yeah, it's it's one of those things that like the wind light comes on and you jump in the next car. Wind light comes on, jump in the next car. I'm not asking why. I'm just gonna keep on rolling with it. Um, yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. That's pretty cool because I I remember uh, Terry Sullivan telling me a story about Bandemir and talking about the national and they had learned that for whatever reason on Sunday afternoon, if you know any of those guys ever made the final. And I think he won it a couple of times up there and a lot of his friends and teammates won, but they said between the, like the quarters and the semis or the semi and the final, when the track started to cool off and the sun went down, like the place would pick up a tent and no one would ever see it in the weather station. And, you know, and once he figured it out, he would, he told one of his buddies, he's like, look, just don't take the strike. No matter what you do, you're going to, they're going to be a tenth fast. And he's like, no, my weather stays. Just trust me. Just get on the brakes at the end, and and that's how wild the swings are up there. So to win and double in in two different classes on the same day has got to be pretty cool, and just uh, knowing that track and and obviously driving well. Yeah, and and a lot of it came down to um, you know that that's probably the best day I've ever had on the tree between two cars. I mean, my lights were double O's just about start to finish there, so that that makes the finish line driving that much easier. But yeah, you're right. The the swings that we see up there, and I'm not trying to make like a urban legend out of this thing and make it sound like it's impossible to race at Vandermeer. You can do it. You can have a good car. Um, but there are times where, um, you know, just last year at the Mile High Nationals, we wake up on Sunday and we're getting ready for um, round two or three of super gas. And you're looking at guys running 1030s on a 1050 index. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like these are good drivers with good cars. Why are they two tenths fast? And you literally just have to make that blind decision. Like my weather station is not showing this. The track should not be like that. Um, but I'm not taking the finish line. I don't care what happens. And and you got to have a lot of faith in basically what you're seeing on the scoreboards to make that decision. Um, and, you know, even, even as recent as last weekend where I was struggling with the race cars, I, I'm talking through all this stuff with my dad. And I'm like, you know, what are we going to do to fix these cars? And one of the things we said was, well, we'll just take them to sea level. They'll fix themselves. Like the 60s will all come right back in. They'll start running the same number over and over, and everything will be okay. Um, it's just weird at Vandermeer. And, you know, you got to catch lightning in a bottle a little bit to, um, you know, like that day that I won the two races. It's like um, catching lightning twice because both cars are running good. Like that never happens. So um, I'm definitely lucky and fortunate for that to turn out that way. And so the, the 20K race, that was eighth-mile bracket racing, right? At one of Chris yep. Forsyth's races? Yep. So once again, kind of showing the utility driver you are and jumping from quarter-mile to, to eighth-mile from super gas to bracket. So talk a little bit about that win because that was pretty big as well. Yeah, that was about as good as we could have drawn it up to start the season last year. But, like, that West Coast bracket racing has picked up a lot just over the last few years especially with the way that the fling got its popularity and uh, people really started opening their eyes to like the eighth mile bracket racing scene, because I think before the fling, we didn't really have that. Like we were just all quarter mile racers. Like that's just the norm. That's just what we did. And then we started getting a taste of the eighth mile stuff. Um, so things have gotten a lot more competitive out here just over the last few years. And it's gotten a lot tougher to uh, win these bigger races. Um, but on that race in particular, like, again, I just caught lightning in a bottle. My car ran a 466, 11 laps in a row. And I was like, y'all can, y'all can tear me down because I might be doing something. I'm not even sure right now because I've never had a car this good. So like do whatever you need to do. But 11 laps in a row, it ran the same thing. And I raced some really good racers that night and, and the mentality just turned into like, 
if the car's going to be that good, just let go on time. And then you know, this is eighth mile. You don't have to do anything fancy at the finish line. Just run the number if that's what the car's going to do. So try to simplify it. Turn some wind lights on. Pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you, you kind of allude to it. Four, I mean, you could probably count on one hand the amount of eighth mile races y'all get to have out that direction. Uh, why? I mean, for us, we have nothing that's quarter mile anymore. I'm in Texas. There's not one person races quarter mile anymore. Uh, Oklahoma, they don't race quarter mile anymore, except for maybe a sportsman class. Um, and then it seems like, the. I mean, further east you go there, I mean, there's a track that races like 400 feet or something. <laughs> and then it seems like the further west you go, there's more of that traditional 1,320 feet racing. There's more 90 racing. There's more class racing. Um, why do you think that is? Is that just what y'all are into, or is that just all y'all know? I think it's all we know, honestly, because we don't, we do do a lot of index racing and I'm not going to say a lot of our good racers, but a lot of racers do gear, gear themselves towards being the types that can race super comp, super gas one weekend and then change the numbers in the box and use that same car to go race in super pro the next weekend. So if you're running everything index racing quarter mile, there's not a lot of reason to switch to eighth because I don't, I don't know if you're just shortening the track to have, I guess people see it as you're having half the fun. Like I said, I don't know. Um, it's it's just the accepted norm, I guess. Um, and it, like I said, it has been changing a little bit just because of what what our eyes have been opened up to with these new or, or with this uh, style of racing that we're doing with the eighth mile. Um, it's it's now becoming the norm, I think. And a lot of people are starting to question, like, why haven't we been doing this for so long? Because before that used to just be like the eighth mile, like the the East Coast thing. That's just what they do out there. But we're west we're West Coast quarter mile guys out here. I don't know, uh, but it, it's definitely changing as time moves along. Yeah, I've got I've done basically quarter mile racing growing up, bracket racing, and then obviously you know NHRA stuff is all quarter mile. But getting a feel for the eighth mile last year and this year in my bracket racing, and I can tell you it'll it'll make you a better racer quick, or it'll make you look like a fool one of the two <laughs> ryan yeah. don't comment on that don't don't comment <laughs> uh i mean but it's so drastically different how you have to drive the race um you have to do in, for quarter mile stuff you can do stuff a lot earlier and you can do a lot more stuff down track and with the eighth mile stuff i mean it's especially with the way the equipment is now i mean it's not like it was you know 15 20 years ago where everyone's stuff was okay pretty much if you buy three things you're going to have a really good race car. And eighth-mile racing, it shows. I mean, we're at Huntsville, which it's a sharp pull every time we go, but pretty much everybody's dead on. So it's impressive for the people who can do well in both. Uh, Quarter-mile side, I mean, it's funny because both sides kind of talk crap about the other side. I'll get it from my buddies that run the NHRA stuff. They're like, man, you know, know, why would I want to run eighth-mile stuff? It's like it's – not that it's easier, but it's like it's half the racetrack. You're not doing half the stuff. And then all my basic just eighth mile race are like, oh, if we'd go eighth mile, if we'd go quarter mile race, we'd kill them. Because they see the runs that they throw down on eighth mile. And that does not always compute to long track. Most of the times it doesn't at all. Actually. Yeah. See, and, and I'm a bit of a flip flopper too, because back in the days, like the, the first fling that came out here, I was like, we're going eighth mile racing. I think we we're a thousand foot at that point. But like I was all on board with, the eighth mile bracket racing thing. I'm like, it's shorter, it's faster, it's harder. Uh, like this is the new, it, like it's more fun. Cause it was like a new flavor of drag racing. 
yeah. now after about five years of getting my butt kicked out at the fling um, with people just throwing down stupid packages all weekend long and, and I see the uphill battle that it is to win one of those races, I'm like, now nah, flip-flop. I'm like, maybe we should take this back quarter mile because it's it's a little less point and shoot. Like, I try not to open my mouth too much on social media about it, but a lot of times that's what eighth mile racing turns into. And, and I've won races that way is point and shoot. You just let go on time and let the car run the number because the equipment's so good. And now I've flip-flopped to where I'm like, maybe we should take this back quarter mile where, uh, you know, the weather does affect you a little bit more. It is a little bit harder on your equipment. You're not going to go 10 rounds without um, testing your stuff out. Um, so I've been switching a little bit in that, and maybe that's the West Coast coming out in me. Um, but at the same time, any chance I get to go out East and do some eighth mile racing, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do that. It's, they're both fun. Um, you can't be scared of either one because I think if you're a good driver in one, you're eventually going to figure out the other one. Um, for sure being out on the West and and being able to do some more quarter mile stuff, it's, I'm becoming a little bit more thankful for that. Yeah. And just to kind of roll off that a little bit. We've we have some diehard ninety racers, stock super stock racers in this area, and we've attempted to try to kind of meet the best of both worlds with the big money racing and the index racing. Uh, and for some reason, it doesn't get any support. Uh, like we put on a five thousand. Nick Duty and Larry Croft put on a five thousand dollar to win. Uh, they had super they had super comp, super gas, super street. Uh, I think they had a super like a top dragster class and then like some eighth mile index classes. And I think we got like 15, 20 cars, like in each class. Why is it? And it might be different where you're at that you get these eight, these guys that run the NHRA stuff. And we can argue all day about the pay because I know there's contingency and this, that, and other, but why it's the same type of race and why would they not come run for money? I'm asking, I'm asking the same exact question. And we do see that maybe even to a more elevated level than that out here on the west coast um i say west coast denver we're i don't even know if west coast wants wants denver involved in their mess but like (laughs) you know what i'm saying um we we had a situation here at bandemir where we raced it was a holiday weekend so we raced friday saturday sunday monday and friday saturday sunday were like points races we're racing for 800 bucks um Mm -hmm. just normal quarter mile super pro and then monday since it was a holiday we were throwing our, our big five grander and I think it was the first time, at least in a long time, if not ever, that we had tried to do a five grand or a Vandermeer Speedway. And Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we've got solid 120 super, co- super pro cards, which I think is a really good turnout for probably any local super pro race. Yeah. The pits cleared out on Sunday night. Nobody wanted a piece of the $5,000. Everyone wanted to race for 800 bucks and take their points and go home. And then – so. I don't know how to put my finger on that one. I can't explain it. I was shocked when I showed up to the racetrack on Monday morning, ready to race for 5K, and nobody's there. Um, and then that's not an isolated incident either. I know that um, Salt Lake City, when they were doing their summer send-offs, um, it, it wasn't their normal super pro program, so none of the locals would show up. It'd be a bunch of guys like me who are, who are chasing money and that sort of thing. A lot of guys from Idaho, Colorado, Nevada um, – coming in and making it a race but if they relied on their local racers for that race to race for money it wouldn't go off so i think mike eames had to and i don't want to speculate or speak for mike but i think he had to get a little creative in ways to get his local guys to support that race 
for it not being a points race. And I can't understand it. Um, other than just kind of sitting back and saying, well, some guys like to go to the racetrack and fire up the barbecue and get a couple laps and, and that's what it is to them. And I got to respect that. Um, if it's something I can't understand, I'm not going to look down on anybody for, um, you know, what they want, what race, what purpose racing serves in their lives. Um, but for me, I mean, we're in no matter what, whether we're racing for 800 or, or 5,000 or, or whatever. Um, but I, I just got to accept the fact that people have different mentalities. And, uh, you know, I, I was such a huge advocate at Bandemir Speedway for putting on a big money race. I thought we were ready for it. I thought everyone was going to support it. And then the pits were deserted come Monday morning. And I was like, well, I, okay, I guess I'll sit down now because – you know, if the racers don't want it. I don't understand why, but that's just the way that it is. So um, I wish I had an answer, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely a thing and it's definitely out here. And I wish it was a little bit different, but like I said, I got to respect guys for uh, making their decision on what they want to do. And as long as you're not asking for a race and saying, I want this race to happen and then not showing up when they put it on, like that's, that's what I can't accept. But, you know, make the best of the situation of, uh, you know, doing what we can for sure. A lot of the division four guys, you know, spend the whole time at the points races and nationals complaining. There's not enough money and parking in the dirt and the dust and this and that. But then when they have a shot to go race for something different, they don't want to go to that. They keep going back to the divisionals and, you know, I mean, there was a time where there was an IHRA points races in division four for super gas and all that. And they might not have 15 cars in super gas and 20 in super comp, but you'd go to the, and it probably paid just as much you know, to make a four rounds to win and win a Wally or whatever they called their Ironman. Ironman. Probably the same amount of money. And, uh, but they just didn't get any participation. And those guys would keep going, showing up at the division four races and griping. But, yeah. Uh, you're talking, you're, you're talking about, you know, people that ask for a race and don't show up. That's like every door car race ever. <laughs> yes. You want to have a door car race. Okay. And there's 120 cars here, but there's 180 of you at a points race. All right. Makes sense. We don't like dragsters. It's an unfair advantage. Okay, we're still not showing up. You know, I just asked somebody about that last night. I'm doing a uh, uh, racer spotlight, and I sent some questions. And my question was, is do the door cars still feel they're at a disadvantage compared, you know, basically looking at Uh, what, Mikey Bloomfield just won 30 grand over the weekend? And I guarantee you at four cars or three cars or whatever, if Mikey could have taken his buy run and his dragster and switched to that, he would have 1,000%. But – it's not a disadvantage of like, say, car capability. It's just, uh, it's just you're taking away one one skill set that you can use. If you're chasing, you you've got an advantage, especially if you're spotting a door car two seconds or so. I I, w- I would agree wholeheartedly. I'm not sure how Chris feels about it, but in a door car, it's and you can't you're gonna look at a dragster and know it's there, but you can't see the closing rate because you have to turn around and find the finish line again. But Chris doesn't have a door car. He's got right. a he's okay. got a shorty shorty roadster or dragster that's called a roadster. I, I started out in a door car, so like, but I didn't stay in one long. Um, but like, I, I really do um, put a lot of emphasis in in the mental game in, in drag racing, and I think it comes down to driver mentality. That if somebody's gonna if somebody's gonna drive well, they can do it in whatever they want. There's guys that race off the bottom in a door car that I don't want to stage up against in my dragster going off the top if I don't have to, because they've got that killer mentality that it doesn't matter if it's a dragster or a door car or off, or off the top of the bottom, they're just going to do their job. 
Um, and, and those are the guys that I have the most difficult time racing because, you know, you can't get into their head. They're, they're mentally strong. So I, oh, I agree. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I'm just thinking like, say we're going a blind dial around one, that, something like that. You know, that's, that's just a little bit different game whenever, you know, we have, nobody's been on the racetrack. Nobody knows where we're going and it's hard. I mean, it's hard. Don't get me wrong, but like people listen to this podcast, like the first, all the door car guys, my comment there, I can hear, yeah, and all the like the dragster guys, yeah, with Chris commented. So that'd be that'll be exciting. <laughs> I get some hate mail for that. That's well, I think it's a it's a lot like the super racing. Is there's a lot of the super gas guys think that uh, you have to have a Corvette Roadster or or you know some type of Roadster to win in super gas, and that's still not necessarily the case. There's just a lot more of them. Yeah, our world champion in super gas is in a in a door car. So like. That's again, I think where it comes back to mentality. Now I say that, and if I'm going into a blind round uh, at a, at a racetrack that I'm not totally familiar with, yeah, I'm going to want to be in my dragster. I've got more confidence that that thing's going to run the number than than I do in my roadster. But if I race my roadster as often as I race the dragster, then maybe I'd have that same level of confidence. Um, I'm not sure. So tell me a little bit about like your sponsors. You have continually had some top level sponsors. I mean, um, big names in the sport and stuff, and you do a tremendous job at that. So talk a little bit about like, how do you approach that? And, and, you know, you've been very successful at it. So tips for some of the racers out there trying to acquire a sponsorship. I don't know if I should be sharing any tips because it seems like it's shoot from the hip from start to finish. Um, but it looks good from afar. Yeah. But maybe that's a tip in itself because literally every single name that's on the side of my race car came about in a different way um so as far as a marketing program like if you have a starting place which is literally just saying i want to have a sponsor you'll you'll start talking to people and you'll find a way to get support for your racing and it it really started for me like i've got a a degree from cu denver in marketing and i can straight up tell you that's a bunch of book smarts that had like no application in the real world Um, but then I started learning and listening to guys like Jeff Lambert, Luke Bogacki, Don O'Neill. Those three guys taught me so much about developing, developing a marketing program for my racing that I I literally just took the stuff they said and went and did it. And I feel like it's, it's been kind of a difficult road for me because I'm not the kind of person that likes to put himself out there. Um, you see me at the racetrack and, and I'd be perfectly happy to just sit in my car in the stadium lanes and hang out, watch other people talk, whatever. Like I like to keep to myself, but in the marketing world, you don't get to do that. Like you have to put yourself out there because you have an obligation to put your sponsors out there. So for me, it was kind of like a complex issue. Like, okay, I don't like being in the spotlight, but now I've got to kind of put myself into the spotlight so I can promote for these people. Um, so it, it was kind of hard for me to get that all going. Um, basically where it all started for me though, was that um, I really wanted to go racing out East. I thought that's where everything was. That was, that was the place to be for me. And in talking to my dad, when I say, Hey dad, let's, let's go to the Montgomery million. Let's go to the Bristol fling. Let's do these things. Let's do these races. And he says, Chris, like we literally cannot go to these races. Like we do not have the money to go to these races. We don't have the time off to do these things. And I can accept going and, and failing, like not winning the race. I can accept that. But what I can't accept is sitting at home and watching other people race at a race that I feel like I belong at. Like I feel like I have the skill set to be there and compete with these people. And it, it drove me crazy to have to sit there and watch them all on a live feed. 
at, at a place where I felt like I belonged. So that was kind of that motivating factor to where it's like, okay, how can we start to generate some income from the racing operation? Or how, how can we at least offset some of the costs? And that's where it all started for me. And, and that's where I kind of um, glued myself to Jeff and Luke and Don and just took everything that they said. They said, read, read so-and-so book. Well, I read that book. Do this. Talk to this person. Go to PRI. I talked to those people. I went to PRI. I did these things that lead to these personal relationships that eventually lead to the name on the side of a race car. And like I said, every single one of them is different. That's what I've learned. Every deal is different. Every every sponsor or sponsor is almost like a dirty word these days. Like you don't want to have sponsors. You want to have marketing partners because <laughs> like you're not going out looking for freebies. I couldn't live with myself or I couldn't sleep at night if I was walking around to all these companies in the industries with my hand out saying, hey, what can you give me? It's like I feel a lot better about that's it. That's what the PRI is for, right? Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> at least that's what everybody thinks it's for. There's yeah, my sponsorship <laughs> packet. What can you give me? Um, well, I, and I can't live with myself in that sort of situation. So it's really what I've embraced is, is going to these people and saying, what can I do for you in a way that can be returned in, in help for my racing operation? And that's been the biggest focus for me. Okay. So how much does, I mean, obviously you have – you know, very nice equipment that presents itself well, you present yourself well on social media and those types of things. Is that kind of one of the first steps is just making sure your shit looks good and, and that companies would want to put their name on it? Or, you know, is it more about just making the relationships and, and going in that direction? I think number one is relationships. Um, I think there's a lot of really good people with good intentions that get sponsors because, the people who, who are giving out the sponsorships know that these are good people and that they'll be well represented at the racetrack. Um, if you're at the racetrack spouting off about who knows what, or if you're on social media bashing people, talking about politics, whatever, basically dividing people, um, you're not going to have the kind of reputation that people want their name attached to. So, I mean, it's, it's a real thing to like go back, clean up your social media. You know what I mean? Take off the posts that divide people, leave the ones that bring people together or bring people to you so that you can share your story with them, share your sponsors with them. Um, yeah, just, and that's the biggest thing for me is that um, I, I want people to see someone who races with integrity, um, is a good sportsman, a good representative of any brand, win or lose. Um, that's really important. Obviously, it helps when you win. Um, but th there's a lot of different ways to market too because there's, obviously different social media pages within the racing community that um, sometimes cross some, some lines of appropriateness or whatever you want to say, like, you know, they're, they're a lot, a lot more edgy than the brand that I put out there and they have huge followings and, and really good interaction. So people will sponsor that. So within the whole process, like I really want to stay true to myself and who I am and I'm not like that edgy um, provocative kind of person. You haven't um, been on Double O Shit Show, is what you're saying? <laughs> I've never been on it that I know of. But Leghorn's you know. been on it. They had him washing his car. He was on the hood of his car. I'm on the pro I'm the profile picture right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's the thing where it's like no like no coverage is, is bad coverage, right? Or any kind of publicity is good publicity. I believe that um, too. But you know, my sponsors have a certain expectation of me, just like the sponsors or, or anyone that gets behind double or shit show has an expectation of them. If double or shit show turned into this thing that like, 
all of a sudden it's it's PG and PC and all that. Um, <laughs> people are going to be like, hey, that's that's not what I signed up for. Yeah. So it's really not about like bagging on one type of marketing over another. It's um, just finding your market, finding your target finding market. market be, being true to who you are and, um, you know, just, just sticking to, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is just being true to who you are. So you've done that some pretty cool stuff on for some of your sponsors. I saw you made a video for the awning company. Was it DMP awnings? And you've done stuff for the energy drink. Um, is that fast five? Go fast. Go fast. I think it's fast something. So what, what's the coolest thing you've been able to do being associated with one of your marketing partners? Um, the awning video is pretty cool. Um, that got me way out of my comfort zone because you realize real quick that when there's a camera pointed at your face, and someone says start talking, it is really hard to like formulate anything comprehensive, like comprehensible. Um, so like I learned a lot about myself in that. Um, and then like after we did the shooting of all that, I kind of handed off like the footage to, to a guy that does video production professionally. Um, but after that, like that kind of really opened my eyes to like the video edit- editing side of the world, which is what I'm getting into now. Um, but honestly, like, Looking back, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, the Champion Spark Plugs grassroots team that they had that was called yep. uh, Search for a Champion Contest. So that was really, really cool. That was a really cool program. Um, and making the video, the way that they promoted it, I was part of Team Champion, I think, for three years. Um, that whole program that they had was was really cool. And I got to meet some cool people, do some cool things. Um, and, and that was my first time representing for like a, a nationally recognized brand. And if nothing else, I just felt really cool that like champion spark plugs was my main sponsor. Like it was just cool to go to the racetrack and represent for somebody. So there's a lot of fun in that. If, if you had one company you could choose to represent, who would it be? Cause, cause I know, I know like that thought process. And I know you see all these companies out there and you'd be like, man, that would be awesome. You know, what, what's that one that would be like, man, I, I'm, you know, giving my left arm to keep this one around. That's tough. I mean, because every sponsor has the different flavor. And I say sponsor, I'd say, I'd like to call it a marketing partner, but you know, same thing, I guess. Um, no, I'm not, having that, not that you want to get rid of the ones you got because I'm, they're all great. You know, it, it all, it all, it takes a village. It's not something that's just simple. I get it. I get that. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of somebody, I guess I haven't put enough thought into that. Like who would I really love to represent? Because I, I really do have fun representing for like go fast energy. I always thought like I wanted to be part of uh, the monster army or red bull or whatever. I've gotten really nice rejection letters from companies like that that are like, Hey, no, thank you. Um, but like I was wanted to be part of an energy drink thing. So, you know, I finally got my go fast energy. They're like a, they're a local Colorado company. So, um, you know, it's cool to get behind a local business, um, somebody that I can push. Um, and, and I believe in their product. Like I drink a go fast energy every day. So, you know, it's, it's somebody I get behind. Um, yeah. and I don't want to fall into like trying to be part of the in crowd, but if I could ever get, like a major sponsorship deal with like a Lucas Oil, K&N, Mickey Thompson, guys that are like top tier in the drag racing industry um, and, and be like their main guy. That's what I've always wanted to try to work towards is just being somebody's main guy. Um, you just want to be Troy. Yeah. I mean, or like a Luke Bogacki, just big K&N on the side. And you know that I'm, I'm like their main like I'm the racehorse here. They're putting everything behind me. That's that's kind of like the pinnacle for me 
on the marketing side of racing is when a big corporate company comes in and says, what do you need, Chris? You're our guy. That would be the dream come true. So what's the ultimate goal? Would it be to race for a living and be sponsored with some of these big companies? Or is it just your continue to build your program so you can race, you know, when you want and things like that? I'd like to be able to just race when I want and have the equipment that I feel like puts me on par with everybody else. Um, because at least like for right now, the roadster that I've got is built in 1994. Like there's old technology built into that race car. Um, even the dragsters that I'm driving, we've got a 1997 undercover and a 2004 undercover. I would like to have the resources someday to stage up with a 2020 roadster and dragster, you know, just to give myself that shot where I feel like, you know, my, my equipment is right there with the best of the best. Now I've got to prove that the nut behind the driving or the nut behind the steering wheel can also be the best. Like, I guess that would be my pinnacle. I see all the YouTube videos you put up with the GoPro and you've got a lot of cool shots and a lot of cool angles and all that. Um, if you were to reference somebody to your YouTube channel, what video would you point them towards? Uh, that one's yet to, yet to be made. You lose me there. I, yeah. I think I got the question, but like, I haven't made the YouTube videos that I want to get into. Um, I, I really want it to be like a weekly vlog of like, Hey, we got to go to this race this weekend. Like we're in Vegas this weekend. Um, and here's what we do when we're in Vegas or, you know, we went out to Montgomery this weekend. Here's what happened so far. I've been able to do like some wiring how to videos or like, and that's really not the direction I want to go because that's where you really have to be scripted and you have to know what you're saying because you're telling a specific story to your audience. Um, and that's just not like my comfort zone. I'd rather be out at the racetrack, turn the camera on. I don't care if it's shaky footage, whatever. I'm telling a story to my audience. That's eventually what I want to work towards. Um, but just with the limited racing this year, it's kind of been tough to get out there and, and make the stories or tell the stories um, and get the kind of footage that you have to have to do that type of thing. Yeah, I, I, I kind of cut out in the middle of my question, I'm sure. But um, a, guy, a guy up here, Jared Ledford, does a really, really good job of, of vlogging and stuff. And, you know, he, he started to travel quite a bit more. He's pretty young, but... You know, it's definitely cool to see, like, behind the scenes of, you know, we're hanging out right here just BSing about racing. You know, we're in the lane. I think I got this guy. This is what we think we can go here. And that's that's a cool way to look at it and a cool way to do it because, I mean, I think you teach yourself as much as, you know, you're being taught in the same process of watching it. So I, I don't know, like, how, how involved you're going to get with the vlog, but there's definitely a lot to learn on both sides of that, I think. Yeah, and I, I totally – at some point would like to be the guy once I feel like I'm in a position to like actually put people inside my helmet, you know, Scotty Richardson style and, and talk people through what I'm doing as I'm racing. Um, vocalizing that sort of stuff. Like you said, you're teaching yourself as you're going along. Um, and, and there's a lot of entertainment value to that as well. Um, and there's, there's certain people that I've, I've stood from the outside and, and watched them race guys like Luke Bogacki, Peeps Pennington, um, guys that you can, you can stand back and watch them get on a roll and you're like, what is going on inside that car right now? Like, what do they know that I don't know that they're just performing at this super high level that I wish I could be on. And if you could put a camera inside the cockpit or a microphone inside the helmet and like, I would just sit there all day and listen to whatever they've got to say. I don't care what they say. I'll listen to it. I'll watch and I'll memorize and I'll, I'll learn whatever they're there to teach. Um, but just getting inside of that roll cage, um, there's a, a lot of educational and entertainment value in that, in 
you know, I, I think there's still a lot of room for the racing world to grow as far as um, video coverage or vlogging, people telling their stories. Uh, so that's definitely something I'd like to grow into. I'm with you. I think that uh, when poker you know, became big and Daniel DeGranu was on TV a lot and he would talk through hands, I actually learned a ton just listening to a pro talk out of hand on national TV. So if Scotty or Luke or any of you guys want to just do that, you know, I bet you'd have a million people just watching and they probably think nobody wants to hear this mess, but you know, I think we all do. Yeah, if we, if we could get them to like slow down each run frame by frame and, and kind of go through what they were thinking, that that would be awesome. Well, you know, yeah. Scotty's school, when you talked about that, I remember watching videos of him and he would go through the lights and he was like, all right, well, I know I was, I just killed two and I'm probably one above. And that guy, you know, I took, 10th out and so he's probably under by three or four because i think i was whatever at the tree and he just comes back and this this the uh, ticket is exactly what he said or real close and i'm thinking wait a second i don't even know who took the light you know half the time and <laughs> he's over there he's already done the math as soon as he crossed the finish line and he can actually verbalize that to you and then the ticket proves that it's pretty crazy yeah yeah jeff heffler had a short run where he did videos like that with the in-car microphone and all that it's really cool if you haven't seen them they're from like 2011 or 12 or whatever if you go on youtube they're there and it's a lot of the same he he rates his hits from like one to five on how he felt like he hit it it's it's a really unique way but i think we do need more of that especially from our the people that we see that are elite i feel like if we did we had more of those stories it it would not. I think it advanced racing a lot more than it already is, and I think it's made a big advance probably the last ten years, just because some of that knowledge that like Luke and like you said through Scotty School, you got to see those videos, you got to learn. I think if we had more of that, there's no telling what kind what kind of racing we could have in five years from now. Yeah, just reading Luke's site is is if you read through the stories and the stuff that he's got, even without the videos, I mean, it's amazing to see how he breaks down, how he dialed for a round. Um, and then he had the guest, I think, you know, uh, what was it? Um, Jeff Lopez did an article where he won Houston and one round, it was like super fast out the weather had changed a bunch and it was fast. And he like sped his car up five or six hundreds more and he was already holding four or five. And I looked at it and I read that sentence like five times. Like, what does he do? He did not want to take the light. So he was going to make his car so fast that he just had to get behind it and, and, you know, and push his other guy. But I was just like, when you see that, it makes you think of racing and what you're, you know, what you're doing wrong, I guess you would say, or a different way to approach the racing. Well, it's an eye-opening experience too. And I think a lot of times, and I'm even guilty of this too, is I watch somebody that I somewhat idolize, like a guy like Luke or a guy like Gary Stan. I'm watching them get in this zone and I'm watching the way that they're racing. And maybe I don't totally understand it. And I feel like there's some sort of secret to it. So like, even if you put a microphone inside of one of their helmets and they talk me through the entire thing and said, no, there's no secret to it, Chris. It's pretty simple. Like, I'm still saying, like, yeah, yeah, like, what do you know that I don't? And, and there's nothing there. But it, it always feels like they like they know something I don't. And and I would just love to get inside a helmet just, and just tell me. Like, there's no secret. I'm good with that. But, you know, it, it's still just getting inside that helmet. Um, is I think there's, like I said, there's a lot of room for that sort of um, content in, in the racing world. Um, I think one of the things that I'll be focusing on in my own path is um, our junior racers. I think the biggest thing for me is that had I had a dedicated mentor to teach me the things that 
I learned from Scotty or from Luke's schools to teach me that stuff when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, even if I didn't fully understand it, just get me on that path. Because I see kids that are coming out 16, 17, 18 that have a solid understanding of stuff that I didn't get up until these last few years because they had a mentor. They had, you know, you, you hear so-and-so, oh, Johnny Laboose, you know, his, his family friends and he taught that kid everything he knows or, or whatever. There was this mentor from the outside that came in and taught these kids these fundamentals of holding and dropping and, and all the strategy stuff that had I started that learning curve 10 years earlier, like who knows where I could be right now. And I see kids that, that have been put on that path by their mentors. So in the content that I create, I kind of want to take on some of that um, like mentor type stuff to the kids and teach them the stuff that I wish I would have been taught when I was there. And I've, I've referenced, referenced this before, but, Back on like the, the dialed in days, we, we interviewed Peter Biondo and Peter's, we, we kind of asked him about, you know, what, how do you get on a whole nother level than everybody else? Because Peter is probably the best to ever be able to separate himself from everything else going on around him. And he said that he's got a mental trigger and his mental trigger is whenever he pulls the car in low, he said, nothing else matters. He said, he said, I pull the car in low and that's my mental trigger that it's on right then and there. And that, and at first I'm like, well, I mean, how do you do that? Because, I mean, I still can't put it in low and, and forget about everything else because I'm trying to think about, you know, what it's going to look like if I miss it, which it's a pretty familiar sight. So, but, you know, it's, and, you know, it sounds so simple and it's, it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll try that. But like the, the level of meditation you have to get to just to get to that point is incredible, I think. Right. And if you didn't even know what meditation was, if you didn't know what a mental trigger was, because that's just not, you never even looked or studied in, into the the psychological game of drag racing. That's a whole other world that you haven't even tapped into that these guys are becoming masters of. And becoming masters of that part of the game is a huge part of them being the racer that they are. And we're over here like, you know, mortals. We don't even know this stuff exists. And here they are on this different level. Um, just having the availability of, of teachers, guys like Luke and Scotty that have made these programs that teach racers now that the information is more widely available. Um, there's still nothing out there for for kids, I guess, is what I would say. Uh, there's no, like, mental – or not men, uh, mentor programs out there that um, teach kids about these things or open their eyes to them at a young age. So to start that learning curve and, and get them on that track that much earlier in life could make a huge impact on the sport. I don't yeah. know if there's anything out there, but there's a lot of these kids that are 15, 16 years old that – Sure, they look like they know what they're doing in a junior dragster. So I don't know where they're getting it from, but there's some kids that went a lot. There, there's, there's even a story. Well, not a story. I, I'm 98% sure I've heard him talk about it. But Troy and Gary Williams have both have been hip, hypnotized to react to the flash. Like that's what they have went through. And they, they'll tell you it didn't work. But like two-time million-dollar race winner and like his record was like eight zero and fifty thousand dollar race final rounds until I jinxed him. That's kind of, you know, tell me it doesn't work, but I'm going to sit here and call you a liar, you know, because, you know, they set up, they set up two and three and if they miss it, they're seven. Yeah. They probably didn't believe it was going to work beforehand, but then they went and did it anyways. Cause it was like, well, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll work. I don't know. We'll try this out. Then you come what? out the other side. Oh, it didn't work. Well, maybe it was, maybe it was the whole time. Who knows? But I, need to make an appointment. I need to make an appointment tomorrow with a palm reader. <laughs> probably going to see a hypnotist pretty soon here yeah, exactly 
yeah, can you read my palm and tell me if I'm ever going to win a race again? <laughs> if the answer is no, <laughs> why waste money? That saved me a lot of money there. I would say that, but I literally have freckles that spell out an L on my hand. <laughs> so I already know what my future lies inside of a race car. <laughs> I'm fighting a tooth and nail. I'm trying to make a comeback. I used to be a pretty good bracket racer back in the day. Uh, that was a long time ago, but uh, we're going to get there. Or, or maybe I'll just get my son a junior and I'll be a coach. In, in all reality, you get your head kicked in enough, you're going to get pissed off and you're going to like, all right, we're going to do it now. Well, you know, it's so different. Like I said, run an eighth mile versus quarter. I mean, in super gas, you go on a throttle stop. So you got to check it. You really don't even hardly leave the line and you're cutting in long. So you get a chance to figure out if you hit the tree or not, where they're at, where they're supposed to be. You come off the stops and you've got a quarter mile to figure out like where to set up on them. And all. in the eighth mile, it's just done four and a half seconds and you know it's to, what the heck just happened so and the packages are tighter and yeah unless you're a band of errands five seconds <laughs> exactly yeah, that's pretty standard yeah your 460 car turns into a 50 real quick i wish <laughs> i had a 460 car you think I a made, quarter mile as long as sea level tried at band speedway <laughs> I, I, I made i made one quarter mile shot like in a dragster once and it was my 19 inch race tech hardtail car and it's eerily quiet beyond a thousand foot. Like it's it's creepy quiet. And there was an Indy, and I don't know if you ever raced an Indy or not, but the grandstands that ended about nine hundred feet in the right lane, and it's like always a real bad draft. I'm there on a you know Wednesday night, so track prep is spectacular. And we're going down through there, and I'm like, wow, this is really really weird. And then I got to hopping, and we almost put it in the same going seven seventy. So it's a good time, and I, I I don't I don't think that. I made a quarter mile shot in a ten flat truck, but that's not important. And I, it's just a whole lot different world. And I don't know what it would look like to race a quarter mile race, other than the one time I tried it and was very unsuccessful. But like, is there a lot of? I mean, you think that you can you play more games in a quarter mile race? I mean, because you, can you give a guy a different look a couple of different times in the run? I don't know. Maybe a better driver could. I I'm always about keeping it simple, and it's the same same principles hold true for eighth as they do quarter i guess if if you're running a tight race if you're good on the train you're close to the dial you're gonna be hard to beat no matter what um i've never gotten too crazy into the the dump and spray and and all that stuff um i just think the biggest thing the biggest advantage to be had is probably in mile an hour and we kind of touched on that before is that if i've got 20 mile an hour on somebody um i've got the advantage i feel like i'm holding all the cards and I don't think that changes a whole lot from eighth to quarter. Um, and you hear a lot of guys say it too. Like if you can't beat me in the eighth, what's, what's going to the quarter going to do? Um, a lot, a lot. <laughs> there's a lot more variances in the race car. And there's a lot more time to, to consider what's happening at the finish. I mean, I felt it, like it, I could do that in super gas. I could do things that right now seem like just far fetched in a eighth mile dragster. Yeah, you get you get an extra three seconds to screw it up, more or less. <laughs> so a lot of that happens, but um, you know that three seconds happens pretty quick when you're going a buck seventy-five, buck eighty or more. So you know it's it's still happening real quick. I don't know, even at Bandmer Speed where where everything slowed down. Now you go from racing quarter mile at sea level, and then the next weekend you're racing quarter mile at Bandemir, all quarter mile, but. Yeah, you feel like you're never getting to the finish line at Vandermeer just because you're that much slower. You can feel the difference in your car. Um, but it's it's all racing the same. Like, I don't think there's anything 
strategically or, you know, anything like that that you can do to, to manipulate the look of a racing quarter mile that you couldn't necessarily do in the eighth. I, I was just on your 20 mile an hour comment there. I, I was talking to Will Holloman after he won the, uh, the dragster at Darlington last year in Chris Reynolds' car. And I said, man, I said, I, you know, he was going 436 or something in the, the, the aluminum SR20 motor he's got in that thing. And I said, you know what? I said, you make it look easy. And he said, you know, he said, I've been racing a long time. He said, the faster you can go, the easier it is. And then, and, and I, and I, I can relate to that because I'm going 490 and I think, wow, I just drove that really tight. And I was like 18,000 front, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, I just, man, I just wheeled him and I'm like 12 under. It's like, all right. And, and he's like, you know, you, you see, you know, you know, you're going to get there because you're going 160. And he said, but you know, your guy has no clue whether he's getting there or not. He said, and if you can bail, you can bail. And that, and that's kind of what the related comment to was the door car dragster verse earlier, because you can see it a little bit better, especially whenever you've got all of that mile an hour. Yeah. And I'll stand by that. I think mile an hour is going to be the biggest advantage, no matter how long the racetrack is, no matter how fast you're going. If you've got that mile an hour advantage, I can even hear Gary Stinnett saying it. I can hear his voice in my head that if you're going index racing, if you're going quarter mile racing, you have to have mile an hour to be competitive because you can literally just sit back and watch the guy out in front of you make the mistake because he's over there trying to race you looking over his shoulder and he's just that much more prone to it. Whereas, I mean, we're not breaking new ground here saying anything that nobody doesn't already know that, you know, you as a faster car probably have the advantage because you've got the whole race out in front of you. But as it pertains to Bandemir Speedway and all that, it's it's the same ball game. The faster cars are just that much harder to race, and I've, I'll, I'll always feel like they have a little bit of an advantage. You say that, and it is primarily true, but then you have a guy like a Tim Nicholson who goes 990 at 99 miles an hour. <laughs> and it's like, how do you race against that? It's like he did the complete opposite of what everyone else did. Yeah, you don't race that. You just, you just point her straight and go, if you try to race that, you'll screw yourself up. Because I think I've raced him. I raced him twice last year. And I think I'm, I raced him twice the year before. And you're joking yourself if you think you can judge that mile an hour difference. And then, so that puts me into a completely unfamiliar game plan where it's like, all right, now I got to dial my car. Like, I actually have to dial it to run the index. This isn't going to work. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I feel so much more comfortable having some in the bag that you can – you can, like I said, manipulate the look of the race. But Tim Nicholson, it doesn't matter what it looks like because you're still 300 feet behind him right before the finish line. And then by the time you pass the finish line, you're 100 feet ahead of him. So, you know, guys like that that are figuring out that top-end stop deal, like that's that takes a certain mindset to do something like that. And I won't even attempt to do it, but he's gotten really good at it. And that's a that's a killer way to race. Because any advantage that the fast guy has, you just took it right away because they're too fast now. Yeah, I mean, he's he's putting three three hundred packages or three packs up, you know, basically uh, teen or twenty at the tree and trying to run a ninety ninety one, and it's hard to get onto that when you're sixty five mile an hour, seventy five mile an hour faster than him trying to wheel race at the finish line. Well, and his car leaves like a super stalker too, and I, I can remember racing him at Topeka last year. We left the starting line. And he's carrying a wheelie out past 60 foot. But when I let go of the button and saw the lights drop, I'm like, I just crushed him. I just, just take the stripe here. I crushed him on the lights. And I get to take it, and he's like 003, and I'm 15. I'm like, well, that is not the read that I got out of that at all. Like, that's not how a super gas car takes off. I wasn't used to seeing that. 
Um, but it's 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 cool the racing because it's such a different look. But at the same time, like if I'm in it for points, I don't I don't want to line up against that guy because that's that's dangerous. No, uh, when he first started it, I thought it was kind of interesting. But all right, you know, it's it's gonna be like one guy that does it and whatever. Well, then Tommy Phelps told me he ran him three times in the same year, couldn't beat him any of the times. I'm like, damn. You know, well, yeah, like, but that, that doesn't play to Tommy's game. No, it doesn't. But still, like to me, he's like, and it might just be because I'm from the DFW area, but he's like the end all be all for super class racing. He's pretty damn uh, good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, whenever he's he, across state lines for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's like that's insane that this guy who's going to go down as one one of the best NHRA sportsman racers of all time can't beat. I mean, he can beat him, but couldn't beat this guy who's going. 990 at 98. It was, I think, so impressive about his deal. I mean, obviously, he's got the clutch. He's doing it with a clutch, and he's hardly ever under. If you go through his box score, it's 90 to, like, 92 or 93, like, every single run. Yeah, I think he would rather be too slow. I think he'd rather be 92 than, than to go 89-9. Oh, yeah. Because he's not hitting the brakes. There's no way he knows he can hit the brakes down there. Matter of fact, I think he won – one of the last national events he won, he took like five or six hundreds at the stripe and went dead two or something. But he's like, well, hey, I just got to trust it when I put it in there, you know, and just go. Yeah, he's perfecting the craft of dialing and making a bunch of guys that never dial, dial to beat him. <laughs> so let, let's just play right into his game plan, the one that he's better at because he does it all the time. If I yeah. never dial and all of a sudden I race a guy I have to dial, to dial, I'm adding all sorts of numbers to the box that I'm not used to seeing. Yeah, and the guys that try to wheel race that where they dial down a tenth or two and try to catch him, nah, they screw it up big time. I tried that too. I tried that against him at like a uh, one of the jackpot races we were doing the night before the divisional. I was like, screw it. I'm holding I'm holding the second. And I still flew past it. <laughs> and I broke out by like two tenths. I'm like, I, I literally couldn't hit the brakes hard enough. You almost have to match his dial and just take off. Of, if, if that's truly the game plan that you're going with, if, if you're racing a guy with that sort of setup, you have to match his dial. Otherwise, half a second, one full second, you're still going to fly right past it. You might as well just turn the stop off and yeah. just try to wheel race him. Yeah, and then he'll hit his little override, and then he'll he'll wheel you down to the finish line and drop, and then you'll go through looking like an idiot. It's tough. <laughs> He's got to figure it figured out. Him, him and a few other guys that are doing it. It's Chris yeah, Garrettson's on the uh, super comp side is doing a Division One, and he's gotten that thing going pretty well as well. Yeah, luckily he's so far <laughs> over that way. I never see you know, that. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine your super contractor having to run somebody going 120? I would love yeah. to see like Stennett and Garrettson run each other. Stennett going like 194 and Garrettson going 120. Stennett's at the trailer before Garrettson gets his time slip. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right, Chris, we've kept you for a while now. So uh, any parting shots before we let you go? Any sponsors you want to recognize? Uh, and, and tell people where they can find you and follow you. I don't want to turn it into too much of an infomercial, but I appreciate you guys having me on here. And obviously if, if one person can learn one thing from, from the time that I put into this, then it's all worth it. But, uh, you know, I'm getting a YouTube channel going. Eventually we'll have some more content once we get out on the road and, uh, I'm working diligently in the meantime to put out some cool stuff, maybe fill a, a spot in the racing world that, um, like I said, has some room for, for growth as far as social media promoting and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, uh, we'll be out at the racetrack probably from August through October, the way the schedule's looking. So, uh, you know, we're going to hit it hard, get out there, and uh, hopefully turn on some wind lights. And, you know, if you see me out there, come say hi and uh, 
you know, have some fun. Hey, write a blog for me. You owe me a blog. I hadn't seen one in a few months. I, I, you haven't seen a racer's blog for me in a while, but you didn't. Wiring a race car is boring enough. Like, now let me write about wiring a race car. I, I had to learn a thing or two about that. I a hard that. time selling that one. Um, Ryan's only, he's a little further behind. He wrote one of his on the road columns and that's the last one I've seen. So uh, you're, you're in good company, Chris. Uh, I, I, do, I, I do want to end this. Uh, I, you obviously listened to a few episodes and I know you're not like a, a beasting kind of guy. So what's your headstone going to say? My headstone? Yep. I feel like it's something about racing at Bandemir Speedway more than anyone ever should. <laughs> like 17 time track champ, but he needed to go see some different racetracks throughout his life or something. I don't know. Here, here lies the key holder to Bandemir Speedway. <laughs> yeah. If it was named something else, it'd be Whitfield Raceway, but we're not going to do that. So we're not sure what he was really trying to accomplish here. Oh, boy. 17 championships can't be wrong. We're trying to elevate that a little bit. That's why we're hitting the nationals and, and trying to get out a little bit farther to the bracket races and you know it, it's fun getting out there and seeing new faces and new race cars like it's a breath of fresh air to see uh different people out at the racetrack meet some new people uh, have you have you knocked off a national yet yeah i actually i at, think you got two right yeah bandmere speedway <laughs> and i raced the guy in the in the uh, the same guy in both finals oh i mean you'll have that if you want more just go down to like i don't know houston or somewhere dfw yeah. Yeah, it's easy down there. <laughs> yeah. Tommy Phillips. Yeah. Big head. We can name off of quite a few. Yeah, yeah. There, there's mile an hour also down there. Like a whole bunch of it. Yeah. It's Texas. It's like a pissing match. See who has the most mile an hour. Yeah, I know. I work for one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. We appreciate you coming on, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Have All fun. Right. Later. So Ryan can attest to uh, what went on over the weekend at Huntsville, and I'm not sure how far we want to go in this, but I just want to throw out there, if you have won a very significant race at the age of 14. Oh, here we go. Okay. I didn't know we're going to go into this, but okay. I, I, no, I'll say it because I think it needs to be said just because I'll tell you why in a minute. So if you've won a very significant race in a big car at 14, why in the hell are you calling – and ratting out somebody else that's at another racetrack that's racing at his 15. What, where are we going with that? Like, how, how in the hell would you, how could you even do that? I was at the race that this 14 year old won. Yep. And their grandparent, like his grandpa, grandpa was raising hell. You knew he was 14 all day. Well, no, we, that he was asked and he lied is what the story goes. That's just what, that's hearsay. I don't know that. Um, why do you want to piss on somebody else's parade after you've already – you know how it feels. You know how it feels to get kicked out for being underage. What what, what do you get off on that? Like, especially somebody that has helped your racing career, a family that has helped your racing career immensely and was one of the biggest advocates of, hey, the young man can ha handle a race car at this age and you're going to turn around and burn them. Um, I just want to throw out, don't burn – these bridges, especially at the age of 14 or whatever, 15 you are now, because what you did there is not, you're not going to get beat up for it, but you just turned the nicest family in drag racing into somebody that, you know, you're no longer welcome there. And, you know, if you want to find out more about that, that's on the drag champ top 10 nominee list because I just saw it a minute ago. Yep. But, um, I mean, what, I, I, I can only just 
imagine it was a lapse of judgment. It had to be. Uh, yeah. It was jealousy. It was jealousy. I get it because the said 14-year-old was told he wasn't allowed to race there underage. Um, but we we didn't have a problem with it, you know, until the 15-year-old was having success and down to nine or ten cars and, you know, his fifth or sixth big car race ever. Yeah, and I've heard so many different variations of – what the story was, if it was the dad that called or it was the kid that called or I, I've and, seen the messages and who they called and all that, uh, man, I, I don't know all the details, so I ain't going to go a whole lot into it. I just know what I was told. Um, but if what's true, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially with the family. It did affect, I mean, they're the nicest people that I've ever met at a racetrack as a whole family group. I mean, you won't find nicer people than them. And, yeah, the kid was underage and he was racing, but, you know. Did not say anywhere on the flyer. Just got to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, uh, also, also said said 14-year-old that had won a previous $50,000 race. On the same night he routed out the other one. One. Was posting videos in a dragster, no gloves on, wearing shorts and a fire jacket, going down the racetrack. So, I mean – don't don't live in a glass house and throw stones. That's all I got. That's all. That's all I got to say about that. No, no. Uh, I don't think the decision making was very smart. I do. I like both kids on both sides, but if what's been said is true, I mean, that's a bad look for sure. I like having you guys around because I am so out of the loop. Like I had no clue any of this went down. <laughs> I thought I keep up pretty good with social media. So, yeah. Um, I'll re- I'll yeah. go read my comments in my top ten list to figure out what's going on. And I I think I think as well as Trip McCarty was driving at Huntsville, he deserves to be there. I mean, he was disciplined to the point you know where he knows that he probably isn't going dead on. He probably has to get rid of a little bit, and he hit the tree and he did his job and, and stuck with the plan. And that was impressive. I mean, that's that's something that he's carried over from you know his junior dragster days, which he was pretty successful in. So. Um, yeah, that's just I all I got to say. Like the, I think we need to end the whole debate and just go look at each track or each race. How old do you have to be to, to be able to race? And whatever the track well, says, everybody I mean, should be fine with it. But if they don't until, say, it gets a little iffy. Up until now, it's been like an if it's not an NHRA track, it's kind of just been an unwritten rule. Like it just you just know that's just how it is. Um, but now we've got people pushing it to the point where we're we're tattletailing on people like we're in middle school again so oh but but the real issue is not the tattletailing it's the fact of how old do you need to be to race let's just right. let's be honest yeah. with that and you've got kids now in juniors that are running 90 miles an hour in a junior that could very easily go you know 130 in a door car i mean in a in a dragster and no problems and probably not really know the difference and be able to race just as competitive but they might be 14 13 15 you know they might I have mean, more experience in a in a dragster than some 30 year old guy that's just started racing from my end of things obviously we're in hra track so we're forced at 16 but even insurance says 16 um i understand that there are some circumstances there's a lot of kids that can drive a race car at 13 14 years old absolutely no question uh, me and will both started racing before we were 16 so i get it um but you know it's really up to the track um I don't think Huntsville sanctioned, so they can kind of they get away with a little bit more than anyone else can. I mean, whenever we weren't sanctioned, we had juniors that went seven flat. So, mm-hmm. um, so no, it's it's something that shouldn't have probably happened, but 
the way it ended is kind of not really disturbed, but it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. Well, I wish they'd be clear on it. It'd solve a lot of that. I mean, we had a kid at, uh, at Twin City Raceway when I grew up that was 13 years old and ran the pro class in a little 12-second Pinto, and he just kicked everybody's ass, and everybody knew he was 13, and he, he wasn't driving a, you know, 450 dragster, but still, he was underage, and it was okay, and when he beat you, he just said, oh, well, I got beat by a kid, and, but uh, there's always been, over the years, those younger kids that can race well at an early age with the adults, but where do you draw the line at? Well, and, and you know, growing up, I started dirt racing way before I started drag racing, and you've got, I mean, I mean Chase Briscoe, a guy from, from where I, where I, 20 minutes down the road from where I grew up, he beat Jeff Gordon's record of, you know, the youngest dirt track racer to ever, or sprint car racer in Indiana to ever win a race. You know, Jeff was 14 when he did it. Chase was 13 when he did it. And now Chase is, you know, racing in NASCAR stuff and all that good good jazz. But, you know, you, you got to look at that. You know, you can go 110 in a circle on a dirt road in a car with a 1,000 horsepower, but we can't go in a straight line. And I think that there's just a little – just it's two different worlds when it comes to to people in the other lane and the, how they feel about it. I think because I mean in a dirt race, if you, if the kid runs over somebody, you just go beat the dad's ass. You know that's just how it is. Yep. No. Fact. That's a fact. I think if there was to be a change on that end, and I'm not saying there should be or there shouldn't be. Um, I brought it up last year. It has to start not even really at the sanction level, but it starts the insurance level. If you can get insurance on board and get some sort of waiver made out for these under 16-year-old kids that want to run big cars and insurance is cool with it, then by all means. Because, um, I mean, let's be honest, if we were going to go off everyone, because everyone's going to be like, well, they don't have a license and stuff like that. Well, shoot, at Huntsville last weekend, I bet you 10% of those people had a license. If that. I was one of them. Yeah. Look at I me. Mean, look at me go. You, I mean – Slate and Cole, I mean, some of those guys run any trace stuff, but most yeah. everyone else, they don't have a license. We're what going you, five, five thirties and a door car, t-shirt and shorts. Yeah, no, that's the culture out there. That's why we got tinted windows, baby. <laughs> Everybody. So, no, it, and this is going to be a debate that's going to happen until something gets changed. Um, it's going to take someone a lot more, with a lot more influence than anyone on this podcast to do it. But it is the least way to start that conversation. Absolutely. All right. Nice way to wrap it up. Thanks to Chris Whitfield for his time and, and input. Uh, really uh, top-notch guy. He has beautiful equipment, performs well. Obviously, 17 track championships and national event wins. I mean, this guy's crazy. So we will catch you all next week. Later, guys. Later.